James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. And the word of the Lord says this, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good contact, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. May we be blessed by the reading of God's word this morning. You may be seated. morning. It's good to be here in God's house with God's people. Amen. Uh, if you're new with us, welcome. If you've uh, been with us a while and have come back to visit, welcome again. And to all uh, those who come all the time, welcome to you as well. Uh, just a few announcements, then we'll dive into God's Word. As Jared just read, we're in a study in the letter of James. So if you have your Bibles, turn now to uh, that letter, James. Uh, we'll be looking at the 13th, the third chapter, the 13th verse through the 18th verse. Uh, but just a few announcements this morning. Next uh, Sunday, August the 7th, will be our move-up day where uh, the children move from uh, one grade to the next. And it will be uh, Brother uh, Joshua's first official uh, Sunday as our youth pastor. Joshua, again, welcome. We're praying for you and your family as they uh, are in transition to try to find a house. Um, you found a house? All right, amen. That, that's, I mean, God just keeps answering prayers. So uh, praise God for that. And then uh, we'll pray for God's uh, quick um, uh, bringing them up here with you, Joshua. So uh, we're, we're grateful for you and your family, grateful that you're here. Anything that we can do to make this transition easy, uh, let us know. Let's continue to pray for that. And then mark your calendars on August the 10th. Uh, that's not this Wednesday. That's the following Wednesday is our business meeting. And then lastly, I just got word this morning right before coming up uh, that Brother Grant Vaughn's sister uh, is in her last moments. So let's pray for uh, uh, peace um, for her and peace for her family, uh, that God would grant them peace through this, uh, this trial. So let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll jump into God's holy word together. Let's take a moment to silence our hearts before the Lord. As he says, to be still, uh, to know him. So let us be still before the Lord so that we may know him more fully and deeply this morning. God, in the quietness of our hearts, pray that the Holy Spirit would speak to us and that through the Holy Spirit, he and would open our eyes, our minds, and our hearts to receive from your holy word this morning. That your word is a lamp unto our feet. It's a fruit for our souls. It's nourishment for the body. And I, I pray that would be true for us this morning. God, I'm grateful for your activity in the life of this church. Your faithfulness to us. and Just continue to see your hand even 
Uh, as when Brother Joshua just said, they, they found the house. That's another answer to prayer. And, and so often we can see that as just um, through happenstance, but it's through your goodness and kindness to us that you even answer prayers, that you even hear our prayers of petitions and that you, you grant them to us. And so again, this morning we come, we humble ourselves, if you tell us to, uh, under your mighty word. Your word is uh, infallible, it's inspired, it's inerrant, and it's a gift that you've given to us to reveal your glory to us, to see how we are to become more and more like you. And so I pray that would be true for us this morning. So lead us, guide us, as we look at your holy word here in the letter of James. And all of God's people said, Amen. If you have your Bibles, again, turn to James chapter 3. We'll finish the chapter, the third chapter, and move into chapter 4. If you've been with us, then you know where we're headed. If you haven't been with us, I'll give a quick recap of the letter of James. James is writing to Jewish people who've been dispersed, and he's calling them back to an understanding of their faith, that God had granted them this great gift of faith to come to know him. And now he says, if you have this faith that's been given to you by God, you have to do something with it. That, that faith plus works shows you are righteous. Now, I'm not saying it's your works that lead you to salvation. It's your salvation that will lead you to your works. But they have to go hand in hand. If you're saved this morning, if you have come to know Jesus, then yet there's a byproduct of that that would say that you have good faith because it's active, it's working. And so this is a test for us. This is whole book, this whole letter from James is a test for every believer to say, do you have a faith and is it working? And James has been walking us through that. He gave this 30,000 foot view of that in verses, uh, in cha chapters one and two. And then in chapter three, he's like, okay, now I'm no longer gonna give you the 30,000 foot view. I'm going to give you a 10 foot view. Now let me show you what faith in action really looks like. And we looked last week at the first place of faith in actions. It's our tongue. And so he's saying to us in chapter 3 is, do you have control of the tongue? If you have a faith, then God through his sovereignty and the Holy Spirit will give you, you'll be able to control your tongue. And so we looked at that last week. And now this week he's going to look at, hey, where's your wisdom? And we can come to this text and think, James is talking about the brain. We're talking about, do you have wisdom? Do you have knowledge? And if you have knowledge, then you're godly. But that's not what James is saying. If you look at it in the context of the text. So in school, they said this. And so this is free. Uh, in school, they would say this all the time. Context is king. So if you take this passage out of the context of where it's sandwiched, then you'll think it's just about your mind. But this text is all about how we do relationship. So he's saying to us, if you have godly wisdom, your godly wisdom will be played out in relationship with one another, in particular the church or the Christian community. And then he says, but if you don't have godly wisdom, you have worldly wisdom, and this is how it plays out. So in this text, James is going to show us both. And he's going to ask you the question that he comes out of the gates with in the very first few words. He says, who is wise 
an understanding among you, question mark. He's talking to the believer, and so we have to ask ourselves this question as the believer this morning. Do you have wisdom, and do you have understanding? And now he's going to show us how our wisdom and understanding play out in relationship, not in a book. There's a lot of smart people that have no wisdom when it comes to relationships. I mean, just this week alone, did you see the news? Elon Musk, one of the smartest, most brilliant men in the world, the richest man in the world, he has no clue how to do relationships. I mean, that dude, he's the most wealthiest man on the planet. And he's probably one of the smartest men on the planet. But if you read in the newspaper this week how he does relationships, he, he's got, he just divorced his wife, had uh, relations with another woman that had, had twins, and now there's this other thing that came out. He may have had relationships with one of his best friends, wives. Like, like relationally speaking, he is a moron. And so it's easy for us to look at that person and judge him, and yet God would say to us, let us look ourselves in the mirror. How do we do relationships? And then more importantly, how is this church doing relationships? How are we interacting? Do we have godly wisdom when it comes to our relationships within the four walls of this building? I don't just mean this building, I, I mean that metaphorically, like relationships with us as the people of God. And throughout the Bible, it's going to talk about wisdom over and over and over again. Over 300 times in God's Word, it talks about wisdom. A hundred times alone, just in the book of Proverbs. So I think wisdom is important, do you not? He says this to us about wisdom and living with one another. How do we live with one another? J Jesus himself says this, and he's going to, you may think, well, you're steering off to the right. No, it starts with this. He says this in John chapter 13, verse 35. If we are to do wisdom in relationships, what is it for? He says, by this, the way that you interact with one another, by this, they will know that you're my disciples. If you love one another. Well, where does love come from? Love comes from wisdom. Because love comes from the heart and wisdom comes from the heart. The writer of Proverbs says this. My hope is that we will leave here with this desire that the, the writer of Proverbs said. Now remember who wrote Proverbs? Solomon. I'm not saying that dude was very wise when it came to relationships either. I mean, he, he had a thousand different lovers. I mean, that's crazy in and of itself. That's not wisdom. I, I'm just saying. But he understood how important wisdom was. Remember when God showed up to him, he said, you can have anything that you want. And Solomon's sitting there contemplating of everything on the planet everything at my disposal, what's the one thing that I'd probably need more than any other thing? And he said, oh, it's wisdom. The wisdom how to lead other people. The wisdom how to be in relationship with other people as I move people towards God. And so then he says this in Proverbs chapter 4 to us. Verse 7. 
the beginning of wisdom is this. To get wisdom. And whatever you do, get and gain insight or wisdom. My question to you, my question to me as we start this passage this morning is this. Do you have a desire for wisdom? And not book smarts. Do you have a desire for wisdom when it comes to relationship with your spouse? Do you have a desire to have wisdom when it comes to relationship with your children? Do you have desire to have wisdom when it comes to relationship with your neighbors? And then, importantly, do you have desire to have relationship or wisdom when it comes to how do we interact as a body of believers? Because James is now going to detail to us what it would look like if a church had godly wisdom because he's going to come out and say, remember these men and women that he's writing to are in huge conflict with God and themselves. And this isn't hypothetical. He knows in this moment these men and these women are in great conflict with each other. And that's why they can't get along because there's no wisdom. And he says to them, and he's going to start off in chapter 4. I'll get there next week and this is how we know it's sandwiched about how we do relationships because he says this who is wise and understanding among you and then in chapter 4 verse 1 what's the question he asked what causes fights and quarrels among you he's going to say you don't have the wisdom that's what's causing these fights and quarrels among you think about all the dissension that this small church has gone through in 147 years And we can look now at what caused all those fights and quarrels among us. Again, I thought it was crazy. When I was 18 years old, I went to uh, Bible college. I did not know anything about God. I did not know anything about the church. I was a heathen. And within months, I was inside of a Bible college. And they talked about dissension that happened inside a church. I just was like, this is baffling to me. All the way down to what color is a carpet going to be? Or are we going to have pews? Or are we going to leave the American flag on the stage or off the stage? These are all the conversations as an 18-year-old kid I was hearing in church. I was like, man, what in the world's happened? And I'm sure this church has had similar conversations. And now I want to lay out to us how come we've had those similar conversations not as a way to point the finger but as a way of conviction to say we don't want to live that way anymore we want to live with wisdom so that we can do relationship why do we want to do relationship so that the world will know we're his disciples by the way that we love one another you see if the church would love one another don't you think that have an impact on the world but it's going to start here with 50 people 60 people in this small community It's not about how they do love. It's how Powell's Chapel will do love. So the test is for us, not for them. Let's get into the text this morning. I will offer this to you. The key to godly wisdom is one word. If you're taking notes. Because all these things are going to come out of one word. Submission. Submission is the mark to godly wisdom. Now here's the other part. Submission is also the mark to worldly 
to worldly wisdom. My question to you, myself, this church is, what are we submitting ourselves to? The world or to God? So I'm going to look at first worldly wisdom. We'll look at a few things. We'll look at the motivation for worldly wisdom. We'll look at the characteristics or how it looks. And then we'll look at the effects of worldly wisdom. And then we're going to go and look and take the, the converse of that. What is worldly, what is godly wisdom? What's its motivation? What does it look like? And what are its effects? So we're going to look at, I'm going to lay out to you this morning, this is what it looks like for worldly wisdom. And this is what it looks like for godly wisdom. And then we get to choose which one we're going to submit to. We do have a choice in this. God is not going to make any of us submit to his wisdom. He's going to give you the freedom of choice. Now, how will we choose and what will we choose this morning? So let's get into the text. He asks the question, who is wise and understanding among you? He says, by his good conduct, let him show his works and meekness of wisdom. So now he says, who's wise among you? And here's the question. How is that working? Or how is your wisdom working? Do you have meekness? The word meekness means this, power under control. Think of a horse. Again, it's all about submission. Who are we submitting ourselves to this morning? And so, do you, do I, does this church have wisdom and understanding? If so, let us look at our conduct to see if that's true. A lot of people say they're really wise. What Jesus says and what James says is, let us judge the tree by its fruit. We can say we have all the wisdom that we want, but if you say you're an orange tree and you're producing grapes, I'd say you're probably a grape vine, not a tree. So now let's look at which one am I producing, worldly wisdom or godly wisdom. So we're going to start with worldly wisdom. What is the motivation of worldly wisdom, let's look at verse 14. He says, but if you have bitterness, or if you have bitter jealousy or selfish ambition in your hearts, you do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes from above, but is worldly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil practice or vile practice. So what is the motivation for worldly wisdom? Two things James tells us. These two things are this. We have bitter jealousy or we have selfish ambition. What is he saying about that? We would say, and the, the, what I do all day, every day, is talk about this word called shame. Shame. You either have toxic shame that says, I'm a piece of garbage. That might not be how your mind says it, but that's what you're saying. Like, you're a piece of trash, so you're lower than everyone else. Or you, you have this selfish ambition that says, I'm above everyone else. So this morning, the first test is this. Where do you fall? Do you think you're below everyone else? Or do you think you're above everyone else? Because if you have either one of those, then you're going to react and interact with the world in certain ways. If I think I'm a piece of garbage, I have jealousy, which means now I want to have what you have. Envy. 
So now I'm going to use you to gain what I do not have. That's what worldly wisdom says. We are lacking, and therefore we've got to go after what we're lacking. Instead of going to God, we're going to go to people that have what I don't have, and I'm going to take from you what is yours and is not mine to achieve something that I do not have. That's called toxic shame. The other side of that coin is also called toxic shame. It's called pride. I got everything. I'm the man. And so if I'm the man, then what do I want to make sure you don't become the man? Which means I'm going to make sure that my foot is always on your head to make sure you don't get above me in life. So now I have this place, what James says is, I have selfish ambition. It's always going to be about me. And I'm going to make sure I'm going to get mine, which means you won't get yours. You ever been around people, both of those people, that are always constantly taking from you, are always stepping on your throat? And James is saying, that's worldly wisdom. Because the world is all about climbing the ladder. So the world's going to look at life as a ladder. And so where do you find yourself on this ladder? Are you at the bottom of the ladder trying to get to the top of the ladder? Or do you think you're on the top of the ladder and don't want anyone else to get to you on the bottom of the ladder? That's where you and I, when we have worldly wisdom, that's the way we interact with the world. Have you ever been at a job? where you see all the people achieving and you're not achieving, you're like, I'm putting all these hours in, I'm putting all this work in, and all these people keep passing me on the ladder. Do we not have bitterness towards those people? Do we not celebrate those people? Or the flip side is you're on the top of the ladder and you're so glad no one is coming up to you on the ladder. Like, look at me. And that's what James is saying. And now he says, that's where it comes from. That's where worldly wisdom comes from, is this place of envy or conceit. And this is what it looks like, or this is its characteristics. This is how you know. It's three things he says in the text. It's earthly, it's unspiritual, and it's demonic. So you want to know what worldly wisdom looks like? It's Earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Those three things are this. It's of the world. The world is so limited in its knowledge. Now, I'm not saying the world doesn't have a lot of wisdom. But it's limited. You see, the heavens are where God relies is unlimited. The world is so limited because it's the creation, not the creator. And if it's the creation, it's always going to be limited. The second is this, it's unspiritual. It, it, what that word means is this, it's from the flesh. All of us in this room still have the flesh in us, the spiritual flesh. It's what Paul talks about, the fleshly man. And he's saying worldly wisdom has to do with the flesh. And what does the flesh mean? The flesh is this, worldly wisdom is always tainted with sin. Always. Now again, here's the great allure or the great mystique of worldly wisdom. In moments, it works. Like, 
Remember what the serpent himself, and this is the next one, it's demonic. The devil is the author of ungodly or worldly wisdom, is he not? Remember the very first things he said to Eve in the garden. Remember what he said to her. He touches on these two points. He says to them, hey, you are, if, if you eat of this thing, the, the worldly wisdom says eat this fruit, you won't be limited. And if you eat this fruit and you're not limited, then you won't be tainted with sin. You'll have everything. And so Satan himself goes after the heart of man and woman in the garden by saying, if you have this kind of wisdom, you'll become like God. Therefore, you won't be needy for God. Therefore, you'll have all the wisdom. You won't need the God who's going to pour out wisdom to you. Is that not what happened in the garden? Is that not what Eve was like? Man, that sounds amazing. Because what happens is when we have worldly wisdom, worldly wisdom pushes us away from being needy to God and other people. Who wants to be needy in the room? If we're honest, nobody. But the, the deal with wisdom is you have to be needy. We'll get to that here in a moment. So he says, this is the characteristics. It's earthly, it's unspiritual, and it's demonic. And this is what happens with it. This is how it plays out. This is the effect of worldly wisdom. Four things we touched in the first two already. Jealousy and self-ambition. Remember in verse 16, he says this. For where, for where what? What, what, this is what happens with worldly wisdom. This is where it happens. Jealousy and selfish ambition exist. There will be, when there's worldly wisdom, that's either selfishness or, or envy, there will be two things. Disorder and vile practices. You ever been in a business meeting? That there seems like there's a lot of disorder? I, I mean, I have. I'll just be honest. And as I began to read and think through this text about some of the business meetings, not just here, but across churches, I continue to went back to, man, why were there so much disorder? Because people had either conceit or envy. So if you're in a place that's full of disorder, you will know that you're in a place of worldly wisdom. So think of that for a moment. If you're in a relationship that seems chaotic and with disorder, you can go ahead and say you are in a worldly wisdom relationship. If your marriage is chaotic and disordered, you are practicing worldly wisdom. I'm not saying relationships are easy. But relationships are not meant to be full of disorder and conflict, are they? So anytime as a marriage and family therapist, when a marriage comes to me and sits and there's so much disorder, I ask these questions about this text to them. What is it in your marriage that you're conceited about? And what in your marriage do you have envy towards the other person about? Because if you have either one, there's called no celebration in the marriage. 
a marriage is supposed to be a place of great celebration. And so if there's no celebration in the marriage, then there's envy and conceit, which means there's worldly wisdom, which then would lead to the second or the fourth one. If there's disorder, then there's always going to be vile or evil practices. Think about a marriage. Think about adultery in a marriage. That's vile practices. Why? Because one of the spouses doesn't think they're getting what they ought to get. So if they're not getting it at home, they're going to go find it somewhere else. That's an evil practice. And on a stealing, on and on and on we can go. Because there's disorder, because there's envy, because there's dissension. And so what I would say is this. We, through evil practices, that's really the fruit of the root. Like when someone comes to me and they're in a marriage with an affair, that's not the problem. That's a symptom to the problem. When someone comes to me with alcohol or drugs or sex addiction, that is the fruit of the root. And I would say the root of the problem is what? Either envy or conceit. And that's what worldly wisdom looks like. Let's take a moment. Let's do a test. In our lives, are any of those true about us? First, personally, then in our marriage, then in relationship with the church. Because now he's going to offer us hope. I'm grateful that James does it in this order. He makes it look real bleak to begin with. Does it? Like when I read those first few verses, I'm like, oh man, this is pointless. But James is like, eh, it doesn't have to be that way. Let me give you the hope of the passage. You don't just have to live this worldly. There's another option. Remember what Jesus said in, um, I believe it's Matthew chapter 6. He says, hey, there's two ways to live. You get to choose. Remember, he talks about the, the narrow gate or the broad gate. He, he's saying, you, you choose how you want to live. The choice is yours. You want to go down the, the broad way that leads to heaven? Go ahead. But there's another way you can live. It's a narrow gate. Not many go through it. because How come? Because it's a really hard gate to walk through. It's a really difficult path. To, to have godly wisdom is really difficult. It takes a lot of surrender, and it takes a lot of submission. Nobody wants to live in submission. I guess I'm the only one. I don't like submitting to people. Maybe you don't either. But to live the narrow way of life, to live a godly way of life, it takes a whole lot of submission because I don't have what it takes to live this way. But there is one who does, and I've got to submit myself over to him. And so now he says this, now let me give you the contrast. Let me give you the other side of the coin. Let me give you the other option of godly wisdom. Because there is another way. He says this in verse 17 and 18. But I love that word in the Bible. That is one of the most hopeful words in all the Bible. But. But. The wisdom that is from above 
is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So now he says this, let me give you the motivation for godly wisdom. Let me tell you where it comes from. Where does godly wisdom come from? He says purity. What does that mean? The word purity means holy, which means this, none of us in the room are holy. So for us, then we have to ask the question, if the motivation for godly wisdom is purity, where does purity come from? God is pure. God is holy. So if you're looking to the world for wisdom, I guarantee this, there's going to be no purity in that. Now here's the deal. I think the church, universal, has robbed God of his, of his holiness and purity. We, we've made God a little less than he is because we don't want God to be holy. We don't want the God to be pure because if God is holy and pure, then there's got to be consequences for our sin. So we're going to minimize who God is. Therefore, we're going to minimize God's wisdom. Therefore, we can live the way we want to live because we don't really see God as pure and holy. Like the sovereignty and the purity and the holiness of God ought to do what happened to Isaiah in chapter 6. It ought to drive us to our, our face before God through confession to say, I'm an unclean man with unclean lips. Woe is me. That's what the purity of God ought to do to our lives. That's called confession. And you know what happened after Isaiah did that with confession? God sent an angel with a, a burning hot coal from the altar of God and seared his mouth and said, you've forgiven. See, it was him understanding the purity of God that led to his confession. So the first thing you have to ask yourself is this. Are you practicing confession of your lack of holiness? Because if so, you don't have godly wisdom. So the motivation is purity, holiness. Now here's what he says. It looks like seven different things. Now this is a test for all of us. All seven must be true in your life if you're living a life of godly wisdom. That's through submission, surrender. So now we ask this question. Are we practicing these seven things in our faith? These seven things, what is he saying? The first one is what? But there is wisdom that's from above. It's per, first pure. So now what the writer James does, he says it's purity. So there has to be purity in all seven of these other ones. So purity is the overarching thing that blankets these other seven things. The seven things are this. When it comes to relationships with other people. The first one is this. Do you live peacefully with all people? Paul says it this way, when it's up to me, I'm going to live with peace. That means without conflict. So I'd ask you this morning, first and foremost, do you have conflict with someone in this building? If you do, you must go to confession. Because you're not living a holy life. But do you have peace with everyone in this building? 
Maybe it starts with your home. You have peace with your spouse. You have peace with your children. You live peacefully. Paul says, when it's up to you, live at peace with other people. That means without conflict. The second one is this. Are you gentle? So we're peaceful and we're gentle. Gentle means this. We're forbearing. I'm not saying you're a doormat. But are we gentle? Are we forbearing with the sin of other people? Do we have recognition that we will sin against one another? But are we forbearing in that sin? Was God not gentle with us in our sin? He is so forbearing. Would we do the same to others? The third is this. We're open to reason. Simply meaning this. You don't always know what the heck you're talking about. And so are you open to rebuke, correction? Are you open-mindedness to something someone else would have to say about you and to you? Like, are you open to correction? Not critique. I hate critique. But I must be open to correction. Like I must be open if someone comes to me, even though I'm the pastor and I'm studying God's word, I, I don't have all the answers. I don't stand in this pulpit with all the answers. So if you see something, as you study God's word, I've got to be open-minded or open to reason that I might not have it all together. Therefore, you're in need of what I have to say and I'm in need of what you have to say. Are we open-minded or open to reason? The fourth one is this. He says, we must be full of mercy. The word mercy means this. Not giving or getting what we do deserve. Am I open to mercy? Or I just always want justice. Thank God for God's mercy on our lives. Without God's mercy on our lives, if every time that we did something wrong and we did not have God's mercy, we would come under God's judgment. So I want you to think of all those years you were apart from Christ, apart from God, out of relationship with God. What, what you deserved was condemnation, damnation, and separation. But because of His mercy for you, not giving you what you do deserve in the moment, he allowed there to be forbearance for your sin, and therefore you came under his, his love and submission to him. May we do that for other people. I'm not saying we don't need to have justice. But that might, must not be our driving force. Because justice can always and quickly become rightness. If we try to be right all the time, we won't be in relationship any of the time. So we have mercy for other people. James goes on to say, the, the fifth one is this, there must be good fruit or good works. Is your holy living, is your godly wisdom 
leading to good works. Is your life displaying to others that you live a life of godly wisdom? He says the next two are to be impartial. That means without wavering. Are you without wavering in your relationships with other people? Thank God that he was impartial to us. The last one is this, and this is the most important, I think, of all of them is that we, when we have godly wisdom, we live with sincere hearts. Here's what the word sincere means. Honest heart. Do we live in relationship with other people with true and complete honesty? Are we willing to tell people when they've hurt our feelings? Are we willing to be honest when we've hurt other people's feelings? Are we willing to confess our sins to one another? That's called honesty. Church, do we live with sincere hearts? Because if you don't live with a sincere heart, you will live out of selfish ambition, vain conceit, or envy. Because you can't be honest. You see, one of the things that we must put into practice is what these two gentlemen, it's not creative at all. If you know anything about psychology or been to Psych 101, you've heard the term. It's called Johari's Window. Johari's Window was written by two men named Joe and Harry, and that's the, as creative they could get, Johari's Window. So it's, it has nothing to do with any creativity. It's just two men that said, hey, how, how do relationships work? They came up with this diagram about how relationships work. And there's one of the, there's four window panes. So think of about a window and four window panes. There's one that's called, it, it's called the blind spot. And then the blind spots, the greatest question that any human could ask another human is this. What is it like for you to be with me? And that's where you get to be honest. And that's where you get to receive honesty. Jenny and I practice that question all the time. Jenny, what is it like for you to be with me? She gets to say it's hurtful. She gets to say it's lonely. She gets to say it's shameful. So that I can now live with this godly wisdom that says, I don't have it all together. And the way I interact with Jenny can oftentimes be harmful. And when she tells me that, then I can live in confession. If I live in confession, then I can live in forgiveness. If I live in forgiveness, then I can live in restoration. If I live in restoration, I live in freedom. But where does it start? It starts with honesty. And so what would it be like for us to be a church full of honesty of what it's like to live with one another? To tell the truth to one another. That's what James is saying. Why don't y'all tell each other the truth of what it's like to live with one another so that you don't have to live in this worldly wisdom that, that's always jockeying for a position? Wouldn't that be a place of freedom to know what it's really like? Like, I'm not always wondering. I, I mean, I love the South. If you've ever lived in the North, they do this better than Southerners. I'm just being honest. 
I don't know how it is in California. Maybe it's like the north. But in the north, I lived in Philadelphia, and I thought, man, these are the meanest people I've ever lived with in my whole life. But they told me the truth. But southerners, we, we, we're so kind to your face, but are we not the most backstabbing people? Like I, there's, When I moved back to the south, I'm like, I don't know where I stand with half these people. At least in the north, I'm like, yep, they hate my guts. That's comforting. Like, yep, they definitely don't like me, and I definitely don't like them. I need to get back to my roots. But what if we just lived with a place of honesty that was seasoned with love? Hey, it's just lonely to be with you. It's just hurtful to be with you. What if we started telling people that? That's what James is saying. And then he says this as a way of knowing if you live with godly wisdom. He says this in verse 18, and we live this way, and there will be what? A harvest of righteousness. He says this because a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who practice peace. If you are sowing peace, there will be righteousness or there will be holiness. So I would say to us as a church, are we sowing peace? Are we living and are we harvesting righteousness? You see, when we go out to the garden, when we go to a tomato plant, we've done a lot of work to get tomatoes ready, have we not? If you, if you love tomatoes, I mean, I love tomatoes, so. Like, I don't just put a seed in the ground and hope that it just produces a tomato. I gotta work the garden. And I gotta work it hard. And I gotta nurture it, and I gotta take care of it. And I, I, I've gotta do a lot of things to make sure that in about 90 to 95 days, there's gonna be this little orange thing hanging from a vine. I can't just put a seed in and 90 days later hope, man, wow, look what happened. And I think oftentimes we do that with righteousness. I want, I want there to be righteousness, but we've done none of the work for it to be produced in our lives. That's where James is saying, you have to have this faith, but it has to be working so that you can produce righteousness. Righteousness isn't going to happen by itself. It's going to be a combination of you submitting to God and through your submission to God, doing all that God's called you to, to produce righteousness. Faith at works produces righteousness. Amen? And so here's the way of application this morning. Going back to Proverbs chapter 4, verse 7. Do you want to gain wisdom, godly wisdom? Show a hand. Who wants to gain godly wisdom? Who wants to live in harmony with one another? Let me tell you four things in closing. How do we get godly wisdom? The first is this. It's the most important. You must live in reverence. Remember what the writer of Proverbs says within the first 40 or so words of the book of Proverbs. He says this in Proverbs Chapter 1, verse 7. 
The fear of the Lord is what? The beginning of wisdom. Do you fear the Lord? Because if you have no fear of the Lord, you will have no wisdom. That's where it begins. Do you fear God? The second one is this. And they have to happen in this order. Is, are you truly saved? Do you have conversion? Do you know Jesus Christ? Because here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who, what is Christ Jesus? Who became to us wisdom from God. So if you want wisdom, you have to be in Christ, who is in God. He goes on to say this. Who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So if you want wisdom, you must be in Christ. You must be converted. If you do not know Christ, you will only and always have worldly wisdom. The second, or the third, excuse me, is this. You must saturate yourself with the word of God. The psalmist says this, that one of the greatest psalms ever written is Psalm 119. 119 is all about the Word of God. Every, every line, every verse in 119 has to do with the Word of God. Go look at it, read it, study it. Every single thing the psalmist says in 119, the longest chapter of the Bible, every single verse has to do with the Word of God. So if the longest chapter in the Bible is about the Word of God, don't you think the Word of God is pretty important? So the Scriptures, you must saturate yourself with the Word of God. This is what the psalmist says in 119, verse 97 through 98. Must be true for us. Oh, how I love your law. It is the meditation of my heart all day. Your commandments make me what? Wiser than my enemies. For it is forever within me. You want to be wise? Know, study, and meditate on God's word. The last is what James tells us in James chapter 1, verse 5. Remember what, what he said. Remember in James chapter 1, just turn your Bible one page over. This is what he says. If anyone lacks wisdom, let him what? Ask for it. So the fourth is this. Are you praying to God who has all wisdom to grant you godly wisdom? So those four things are this again. If you want to obtain godly wisdom, you must be in reverence to God. You must be converted. You must meditate on the word of God. And you must spend time after time after time praying for godly wisdom. Is that true for us? What if we as a church did those four practices? Think about the unity that we would have in this body. Why? So that the world will know that we're his disciples. And by the world knowing we're his disciples, we'll see more people come to Jesus than we've ever seen. But it starts with godly wisdom, how we love and interact with one another. Let me pray for us this morning.